Make a move it, then she'll call him. Forest fires, Google's ballin'. Take a chance and roll the dice one day. If you're a DM player, find you. Millennials can join this quest too. Expedition, we're gonna find a way. So there's Craig. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, that robot voice. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, no, thanks so much. I mean, I was it was such a delight to, to get your message, and um, I, uh, I I wasn't expecting it. I, I was actually thinking, oh, okay, who can I who can I um, pester next? Because <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've been doing quite a few um, interviews recently. Obviously, you know, I interviewed Scott, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, you know, I think primarily through the podcast, but of course. I'm a massive Call of Cthulhu fan, and so everything converges, and and, and it was just really, um, I, I was I was delighted that you you showed an interest in speaking to me. So thank you. No, that's okay. And it's a pleasure to uh, to chat. To be honest, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I've listened to. Um, unfortunately, I've not listened to all. I have to say, but I have listened to a few of your uh, your uh, your podcasts, and uh, they are. You know, I've been I've been quite entertained and informed. So uh, well, um, goodness me, you know, so uh, <laughs> you seem to you seem like a. Uh, a friendly enough person to uh, yeah. to uh, spend uh, spend an hour chatting with. So uh, yeah, thought, uh, yeah, it seemed seemed cool. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's 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 um, bizarre thinking that my random whitterings could could inform and entertain you, but um, uh, I'm very very glad to hear that. Um, I yes, we I, I guess we have about an hour. Um, I, I try and keep these to about an hour because just people don't really want to listen to anything much longer than that. Um, so yeah, sure. so I've got some. I've got four like main things to talk about with you or to ask you about and um okay um and and they kind of overlap anyway so it'll probably be kind of a free-form conversation but um sure but sure. um just to just to line it up i i, I wanted to talk about seventh edition call of cthulhu um and, and the work yeah. you did on that and, and and the rules i want to also because it just seems very apposite to talk about uh chases <laughs> the chase mechanic um given that you okay. devoted a whole chapter to it and i and i have had a conversion moment about them um <laughs> i also wanted to talk about um <laughs> about the england chapter of masks specifically i mean I, I i would like to talk in a more wide-ranging way about masks but i know yeah, you, sure, you, sure. you you wrote the the new version of the england chapter and i really want to, and, I, and i loved running it so much that i i thought it'd be good to to talk about that and then i want to talk about pulp um yeah. as well so I, I think that's enough uh to, to fill up way more than an hour but let's see if we can it sounds and, like it yeah <laughs> it, depends. it depends as long as you don't as as ask me about you know mechanics like like i remember everything off the top of my yeah head, but, uh, yeah no that's fine <laughs> no I, I i don't think it's really bad so i'm not you know i'm not a really huge one for mechanics. I, I I'm not very no. um, good at them, <laughs> remembering them or, <laughs> or implementing them. So I don't ever. I, I don't. That's not what interests me about role playing games, and particularly about the the, yeah. the, the the stuff that you've written. But I think in some way mechanics do help you do certain things in role playing, and 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 I think there's something specifically in Call of Cthulhu that that really aid the role playing and the storytelling. And they're sort of mechanically derived, let's say, like sanity, for instance. You know, well, at the end of the um, day, you know, it's, it's a game. game for you. So, um, I, you know, maybe we can yeah. generally talk yeah. about them. But 
yeah. Yeah, so seventh edition. Um, Scott did actually talk a bit about this in our interview, if you, if you listen to it. Um, mm, yeah. Um, but, you know, and he talked about why you and others decided that there needed to be, or, or, or why you decided to actually do, do it. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, from your point of view, from your perspective and your words, you know, what, what is, why should someone get seventh edition called Cthulhu? <laughs> Here's your little ad ad space <laughs> why should why should someone buy um, seventh edition if they've got previous editions or maybe they haven't got any editions at all uh, i guess there's <laughs> there's two answers to what you asked uh the first one being that is if you've never played call of cthulhu and you don't own a copy of call of cthulhu then um you know buying the current version of the game is kind of the that you know would well to me make the most sense because obviously you're you're getting into uh, an, an evolved rule set that's um, born out of um, nearly 40 years of gameplay. Um, you're getting the latest edition, which is compatible with obviously all of the latest books, but is also backwards compatible to every adventure and supplement that's ever been printed for Call of Cthulhu. That's the kind of the, the easy answer. Uh, if you already own an, ed- an edition of Call of Cthulhu, well, I mean, in, in you know, uh, hands up, to be honest, you don't necessarily need to, to buy a new edition of the rule book. Um, you know, it's the same game. Um, what you have with 7th edition is, um, well, as I've just said, a, 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 an evolution of the rules. I mean, every edition of Call of Cthulhu, uh, certainly from 1st to 6th edition, has been a, a, has seen small evolutions in the rule set. Nothing particularly major. But there have been tweaks, some skills have been changed, um, the way certain calculations were made in terms of uh, you know, different attributes or so forth um, may, have, may have been tweaked over time. Um, and um, certainly the sixth to seventh edition jump is probably the biggest jump in the game's history, um, but it is still the same game. You're still making uh, pretty much exactly the same roles, uh, but sometimes you're interpreting those roles slightly differently. For instance, uh, in previous editions, it was basically a straight pass and fail roll with a percentage dice. Uh, in seventh edition, we introduce uh, levels of difficulty and levels of success. So you have a, a regular roll, which is your straight percentage, uh, and you have a hard roll, which is half of your percentage uh, skill, and you have an extreme roll, which is one fifth of your uh, percentage skill. Um, and that helps to granulate, um, you know, actions in the game a little bit more. It also um, translates into combat. Um, and basically what 7th edition does is basically smooth some rough edges um, of where there were kind of kind of issues for, for kind of, well, for many people in some of the older editions in that things like, um, you know, if you, ask, if you ask a group of Call of Cthulhu players to explain the grapple rules from 1st to 6th edition, you'll get um, a different answer from every person probably because nobody could agree how to implement the rules. So... You know, what we try to do is clean that up in 7th edition with the whole kind of uh, basis of combat manoeuvres. So grappling uh, was broadened out to encompass any range of kind of tactical or, um, uh, you know, actions and manoeuvres that could take place during combat, as well as, you know, including grapple, but resolved them in a, in a very clear and straightforward method that was, you know, basically building off the, the existing combat rules. So things like that. In the older editions, um, what happens when a character goes insane was kind of defined, but there was very well. There is zero advice on what happens next. How, what does what does what does a character kind of do? You know, and there was guidance on some things, and there was suggestions, and there was a lot of kind of real world mental health criteria, um, which you know is arguably 
you know, does it have a place in, in a game or not? I mean, people will argue different points of view on that. We felt it should emulate the source material, which was the kind of the weird fiction of the early 20th century written by Lovecraft and, and the Lovecraftian circle of writers such as Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and so forth. And we wanted a, you know, a, a system that um, was all about the corruption of the mythos on the human mind, um, which may sometimes be seen or embodying certain aspects of mental health, but isn't that isn't purely what it is about. So we went for a, 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 a kind of a, a clearer set of guidelines on what happens when a character goes insane. What does that actually mean? What's, what happens in gameplay? And what does it mean about control of the character? Who is controlling the character? Is it the keeper? Is it the player? When does that change? How does you know how does it move forward? So we we built in a lot more kind of mechanical mm. guidance on on insanity in that in that way. Um, so, and so, to say, sorry, go on. So yeah. can I interject there? So so yeah. all of those tables that are there now that you roll after you you know have a bout of madness that that wasn't in previous no. editions at all no bouts of madness were were introduced in seventh edition wow okay because I, I, i've never played any of the early editions so for me i was sure. like to me it all felt like okay so this is how call of cthulhu always has been or maybe a yeah. refined version of it but that that's fascinating because that's so such a huge part of the game now um given your propensity for for, for going insane in, in in the game um and 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 I think what what I love about that is it I I don't see it I and mean, I know that Scott said that you, the, the way you describe it is the, the the GM and the player wrestling over who has control of the character that's the kind of ongoing tension between sanity and, and insanity um, is that is that is that correct did he characterize that I think in the right yeah way? yeah I mean the, the, yeah I mean that there is certainly we do try and characterize it like that to give some sort of sense of understanding of who's in control of a character at any one time. I think it's down to each play group and each keeper to kind of determine how that actually translates into their games. Because oftentimes with a with an experienced group of players, the keeper doesn't actually need to take control of the character because the player is more than capable of, uh, you know, role-playing their character, uh, you know, uh, having been you know traumatized and affected by some kind of you know uh, horrific or mythos induced experience and so it's not always you know it, it, you know whilst i think that's a good characterization i think um you know it does come down to you know uh, my stock answer is know your players and if your players are, are you know are enjoying that kind of challenge in terms of their role play then that's great what we wanted to avoid um, which we often saw and experienced ourselves in playing you know previous editions of the game was that kind of um, it tend to happen at conventions with people you didn't really know or people that weren't really sure about what to do with their character once their character had gone in temporary insane. There tended to be a kind of um, a short step to kind of acting silly, which in some cases kind of works okay, but oftentimes it's kind of, it doesn't really work. And uh, and often just, you know, the player feels uncomfortable and or or everyone else feels uncomfortable. Um, so we wanted to kind of, you know, with the Bouts of Madness, provide, as I say, some mechanical, you know, uh, marks for that. So it wasn't about a character just acting silly. It was a character acting in character who's just had a traumatic experience. And so that's that's why uh, they came in uh, with, the, you know, with, mm. with the Bouts of Madness in, in that sense. I, I think um, what, what I find really fascinating about it is that in a lot of other game systems, probably the majority, that type of interaction where you're taking control of a player's character and making them do something that is almost seen as a as a as a you know absolute no-no you know as, as something that's 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 antagonistic player versus gm 
uh, player versus DM, um, kind of very old fa- old fashioned way of playing. But in Call of Cthulhu, it works perfectly because it does emulate that loss of control and and loss of control in most other role playing games. I think is a very treacherous area to play with. Um, but but what I how I like to think of it, it's almost in 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 in, in like an improv comedy troupe and someone from the audience is just shouts out a suggestion and then you have to act out that suggestion. I see it much more kind of collaborative in that way rather than antagonistic. So um, it's not really a, a fight. I think you have to, between the player and the GM, it's it's more like, this is our agreement. This is the game we're playing. We've agreed that if this happens, your character isn't going to do what is optimal or best for them. And, and I think in, you know a lot of players have a bit of a difficulty adjusting to that when they first play uh, if they've come from D&D or something uh, is that something that you've ever experienced that they that they they kind of resist that at first and, and don't understand why why that is part of it um <laughs> I, I i guess sometimes a little bit um but i i mean i completely agree with the the approach you you, you know you take i think it is about a um a compact with the players i think you know any you know if you're playing call of cthulhu and you're the keeper and you take control of a character and you then do your best to basically kill that character without the player kind of having any agency in that i think then you're being a complete arse and yeah. you should stop and have a word with yourself um but um but i think you know there's that part that yeah i am gonna, i am going to make your character suffer or do something to put them at risk but you know the rule we've defined the rules in seventh edition so the character knows that they will get their character back you know mm. um whereas before it was a little bit kind of hand wavy <laughs> that kind of thing so there's a kind of a reassurance in built in the mechanics that the player will get their character back it may there may not be you know, they may have a few scrapes and bruises on the way but but they'll yes. be okay to some yeah. degree that, um, that that waking up eight hours later in a in a, in a dustbin in the back alley kind of thing yeah, no, is, exactly. is wonderful it's wonderful yeah. <laughs> but it is, um, it is it is about that kind of uh you know agreement with the players i'm, I'm very I, I i rail against the whole kind of um uh the the GM versus the player mentality of a uh, uh, the, the you know was inbuilt into original role playing games and has kind of still exists to some degree in certain games certainly uh, I I've always resisted that I don't think it's a, uh, a it's a it's a versus situation I think it's a collaborative uh, you know game experience a storytelling experience that you're collaborating together to do yes. so whilst you know whilst I can hurt your characters and you know and I've got a a, a series of mechanics and, and um, you know characters and plot to do that. I'm working with the players to tell a narrative story that hopefully we all enjoy. I'm not there to just kill the players in in an hour. You know that's mm, not what mm. it's about, and that's not what the game is about. No, and and Scott, um, uh, and I know this from having listened to quite a lot of How We Roll and virtually everything he's done on that. I I really like the way that he um, kind of. Uh, implants insanity. He he he's kind of like this voice whispering in the player's head, <laughs> often yes. you know around you know paranoid thoughts or so he does it in this quite subtle way without without overtly taking control. And I certainly learn a lot from that. Um, you know when when um, when running, I was running Blackwater Creek just the other the other week, and mm. and of course you know um, when you go into um, the Earth's womb and you see you see Abigail. Roads in her monstrous form, uh, that's going to probably send you over the edge, most likely. Um, and one of the players was there pretty much on her own with someone just following behind. And I just said to her that, oh, mother mother just wants to give you a hug. 
know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't say, okay, now you just run forward and just plunge into this white mass of of, of flesh. <laughs> so, you know, mother one. Yes. And she was like, yeah, that's great. Perfect. Um, Mummy, I'm coming. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, that's... So, yeah, I, I yeah. think it's a... Yeah, so so I, I think it is a wonderful mechanic. Now, what, and I, I do want to go into a little bit of detail about it. I'm, I apologize. Um, you can probably, <laughs> you can either go in as deep or as shallow as you want. But um, part of me feels that, and I think Scott did sort of confirm this, is that some of the rules seem to sort of be inspired or influenced, at least in some ways, by by this kind of new type of games from the last 15 years, these so-called story games. Is that... Was well, that in your mind well, at all when you were thinking about them, it, about how to it, move towards that? Well, well, I mean, some of this was written be- between myself and, and Paul Fricker. Um, we both played Call of Cthulhu you know, when we were writing some of this, and we'd both been playing for over 30 years. We'd both written and run games for hundreds of people at conventions, as well as our own personal gaming groups for 30 years. And so, so you know, we kind of felt that we you know knew the game pretty well and what it could do pretty well already and where there were you know where there were potential kind of instances where things weren't quite so clear obviously on top of all of that experience of gameplay with a with a specific game we we also are gamers we played other games through our gaming history you know whether that's you know 1979 playing dnd to uh you know to uh whatever it would be 2002 when we're playing dogs in the vineyard or primetime adventures or or whatever game you know you know and um and certainly, you know, uh, I think it would, you know, certainly um, developments in gaming, and, they, and and I wouldn't just put it down purely to, you know, what you would call you know indie games or small publisher games. Um, certainly, there was an influence from from you know the kind of ideas that were coming through from some of those games, but you know also from other games as well. You know, just from experience in terms of plays, and these could be games that we would play twenty years ago that stuck with us. That kind of like, hey, that was a kind of cool idea. Maybe we could, you know bury that away in the head for a while and it come, you know it comes to fall later but certainly um you know new wave games certainly you know the ideas of failing forward and all that kind of stuff i mean what you've got to accept is that a lot of these things a lot of you know call of cthulhu keepers were kind of doing as house rules anyway so you know there was there, there's always been that situation that's sometimes been uh, a criticism levelled at Call of Cthulhu that you know, or, you, or if you fail your spot hidden roll by one percent, you miss the clue and the adventure stalls, which is just preposterous to be honest. I mean, it, I've never experienced a game like that, and I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who's experienced a game like that. Um, but what, what you know? But I have seen people fail their roles and be disappointed, and um, and so. Um, you know, understanding that one, we don't need to actually create a brand new rule system to deal with this. What it is is actually just good scenario design and good GMing to ensure that you know players find the information they need to move the story onwards, just like any other you know game. Um, but you know, by bringing in the kind of concept of pushing uh, pushing the role, uh, expanding luck points to be able to spend them on rolls to adjust them, just kind of increased. The level of player agency within the mechanics without giving them the whole house and in fact they actually you know, support the style of game that call of cthulhu is which, which is a, a horror 
tension field gain. So pushing the roll up to the ante, it makes the you know it makes if you you know if you fail fail a push roll, the consequences are far worse than simply failing a roll now, which again you know ups the tension, ups the ante to to what can happen. And the same for you know spending luck points. What you're do, doing is similar similarly with uh, you know when you lose hit points or sanity points, your character is is going down this spiral. And with luck, we're adding a third strand to that downward spiral. That at some point as you spend merrily you'll be spending your luck points to to achieve different goals that you want to do during the game at some point there's going to come a time when you need to make a luck roll and your reduced luck score now is going to really you know play heavily particularly if that role affects not only your character but everyone in the group as a group luck roll so it they both kind of enhance the kind of um, the horror aspects of the game, whilst also providing you know a degree of player agency to kind of get past those kind of things where you know I fail a roll by one point. Hey, I could spend a point of luck to achieve that, um, but I don't have to. It's my choice as a player to do that, and so just kind of you know building in a little bit more flexibility with the mechanics in that way kind of helps to kind of alleviate where there may be some tension for some players. Uh, you know, in terms of moving things forward. But I, um, hmm. other than I, that, yeah. Yeah, I, I personally love the luck mechanic and, and even more so in Pulp, but we, we, we'll talk about it a bit later. But um, the one thing that I I sometimes feel a little bit uh, is immersion breaking is is when you say, do you want, as a GM, you say, do you want to spend some luck on that? And Because you, you kind of, you almost need to... Uh, Sometimes the often the players just will 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 not think of doing it, and you kind of want you, you're almost having to to shepherd them towards it. Say so you only failed by like two, <laughs> so it's almost like this very meta gaming moment where the player decides, okay, I'm now going to spend some luck right now. I wouldn't spend it on a roll that didn't matter, but. I, I'm, I, I, I've got over that, to be honest. Um, I, I think I, you I, have to, because, I mean, if, you know, in the next breath, you're asking for a, a spot-hidden roll, or you're exactly. you're saying make a sanity roll, and, and that's isn't that just as less game-immersive than any other statement you're going to make mm, as a keeper? That's a good I, point. I, 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 don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy this whole, <laughs> or it breaks the immersion. You're playing a game. You're all, you broke immersion from the day you sat down and said, roll that dice for me. Yeah. You know, unless you're playing without rules and you're free-forming it, at some point in the game, you're going to use the mechanics of the game. And, and if that breaks your immersion, then perhaps you're playing the wrong game. I don't, I don't know. I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think <laughs> no, people, that's, that's people fine. have these hang-ups for no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I, the, for me, it feels a bit different, the luck, the, the spending of luck versus the um, making a, a skill check roll. I don't know why. Um, it's because it's new. It's yeah. because it's new. Well, it's like but, chases. Mm. It's people, people <laughs> take time, take time to kind of, allow these slightly different things to filter into their gaming table. And, and people generally are a little resistant to change, however small or large change that may be. Yeah. People take time. And this is one of those things. I mean, in my games, when a player fails a roll and it's probably something, you know, maybe significant, you know, if they pass this roll, it would be kind of cool. But, you know, hey, it doesn't really matter. I, 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 I try and present the devil's bargain. Do you want to leave the roll as is? Would you like to spend yep. luck or would you like always. to push the roll? Always, because always. <laughs> by saying that, I've immediately upped the tension in the scene. No, you're absolutely right. And and as I said, and that's I what it. the game's about. That's it is. what the game's about. It is. And yeah. and the push the push roll mechanic is 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 fantastic as well. Um I, I sometimes do have trouble coming up with very inventive and and uh, distinctive 
bad outcomes, but that's just on me. You know, the the, the one that I find hardest is always spot hidden. It's like, okay, you've uh, you've looked too hard and uh, you've gone blind. No, that's a ridiculous one. But um, <laughs> but, but um, do, do you use your players? Do you? Yes, sometimes. I find players are are really good at um, you know working out <laughs> troublesome things for their fellow players. That's that's uh, good. Yeah, and I also do don't more of don't. That. Don't forget that, you know, a failed push role, the consequence doesn't have to be anything to do with the role that you was just made. That's it true. Just, the, consequence, the consequence is a bad consequence, which could just be whatever the player was doing, whatever they were looking at, they were being looked at by somebody else from across the street. or or And, and they can be delayed. It can just be, you know, hey, mm-hmm. remember you failed that push role earlier and there was no, no immediate consequence, but hey, now you've opened that door, the consequence is the courtist did hear you and is waiting for you with a knife and you know, it's a surprise attack. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I think that's very good advice. And it's something that, that I do forget actually all the time. I'm always thinking, okay, what happens right now because you failed? And um, yeah, yeah. That, that is yeah. very good advice to actually think about maybe a longer time span where that could have had an impact. I mean, one of the ones you, you, you suggest is that it takes longer than you thought and then that has some kind of negative consequence because you, you you miss something else because you were there for so long or whatever. No, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was running a game the other night and I had a player in the library, uh, failing their library use and pushing the role. And um, and I just had them, you know, kind of realise that they'd spent hours in the library and they'd pulled, they'd pulled apart the newspaper, you know, archive. And it was just, you know, newspapers strewn everywhere. And they're tapped on the shoulder by the librarian who says, what the hell are you doing? Get out of my library. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they left without any information. And, but obviously they were turfed out of the library at the same time with no... You know, chance of returning, so that you know they failed to find the information, and they got a black mark against them. You know, from the librarian, as it were. Which you know, it was an early part in the scenario, so I didn't press it heavily. But later in the scenario, it may have been a you know a bad guy tapping him on the shoulder. Perhaps it wasn't a tap; it was a knife. You know, I don't know. I don't... How 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 nuclear do you go when someone either fumbles or fails a pushed Cthulhu Mythos role? I'm curious. Because uh, <laughs> the temptation think... is to go full nuclear, but yeah, no, I think you've got to be careful. I think, I mean, it's really hard to give general answers to these kind of questions because I think it all, it depends very much on where are you in the game? Mm. You know, is it is it the first hour of, of the time you've sat down to play this or are you in the last, you know, 20 minutes of the session you're playing? Um, is it is it near the climax of the scenario? Is it near the start of the scenario? Is it in the middle of the scenario? I think these all make a difference in terms of you as a keeper, in terms of, what you want to do now obviously if it's near the climax or it's in the climax and this happens then yeah you probably are going to feel the you know the need to press a nuclear button and you know build up the climax even more you know through this action mm. if it's earlier in the scenario then you perhaps don't want to do that because that's going to kind of you know bowl the scenario over a little bit so you want to kind of you know mediate it down a little bit and maybe you know use it as foreshadowing for later you know give them a little hint of you know how bad it's going to be later by showing them a little bit now mm. um but you know you again use it always to try and you know foreshadow and build that tension a bit just you know you thought it was this but actually could it be this now and yeah. or, you know, use it to uh sow seeds of doubt perhaps or, or confirmation but by the sound of of it scott often um uses it to have to to to, to create an impromptu meeting with a with someone that you don't want to meet from the other side Uh, he seems to do that and 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 that's been quite inspirational for me as well um but um 
just talking, um, I, I, it took me a long time to actually get my head around the sanity rules. I, I think because there's all these different phases, I had to read it mm. and reread it because I'd never played Call of Cthulhu before picking up the seventh edition. So yeah. I had no background to it. So this idea of the, um, you know, the initial bout of madness and then, and then the, um, I believe the ongoing, like for the next number of hours, and then how how is that different? Is that essentially that they're sort of effectively indefinitely insane, but only for ten hours, so that any time you know they're very fragile for the next ten hours? It was quite hard for me to yeah, kind of, yeah. and then and then how do you play out indefinite insanity? Is that like you know for me, it's like do, do they have to be mad all the time, or is this just they're very fragile, or you know how, how do you um, play out indefinite insanity? I'm I'm curious because I, I could definitely well, this, this is yeah. I mean this uh, we, we, I think. Um, yeah, we tried to kind of explain this in the sanity chapter, but again, I felt it needed probably a little bit more kind of amplification. So again, there's a section in the playing the game chapter in the Keeper Rulebook, um, which talks about kind of underlying insanity. And basically what you have, you have an insane episode, or I should say your character falls insane, whether temporarily or indefinitely. And the only difference between the two really is time scale. You know, temporary is temporary. It will you know, come back... Uh, uh, they'll, they'll get, you know, regain full control of their character within, a, within a, you know, within normally like 1D 10 hours or something like that, I think it is. Uh, and then indefinite is indefinite, you know, it will go on, but it can be cured. Um, it can be, you know, um, uh, the character can kind of, you know, uh, resolve themselves down the line, uh, you know, through various different actions. Um, so what you have is when a character goes insane, you have what, you know, you have the bout of madness. And that is what you want, if you want to call it, that's the mad bit. That's the bit where they become frenzied, crazed, uh, supper mania or phobia or whatever it may be. And that, that kind of moment, that, those kind of moments which can last anywhere from a few seconds, you know, with a 1D10 kind of round version, or it could last 1D10 hours if it's the summary version, um, where, they, where they, you know, they kind of not really in control of their character, they they kind of you know uh, faint to the floor, run shrieking away, you know uh, have delusions, um, see things that aren't there, or or, or or you know miss see things or whatever it may be, and they're all kind of characterised in the bouts of madness kind of information. Now once that bout of madness has passed, and that's again normally a, a, a D10 roll for you know a matter of kind of combat rounds or, or, or hours depending on the type of it. Um, the character then, if they're indefinitely insane, they're obviously still insane, but what the, their insanity becomes an underlying insanity. So they're, they're not walking down the street, you know, making bird noises. They're, 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 they're a functioning human being and they can carry on, but they are just more susceptible to certain things. So, you know, for instance, they may be more susceptible to sanity loss. So if they take further sanity loss, it immediately results in another bout of madness or uh, particularly, I think this is the one that I tend to use more than anything else. Is they they are prone to delusions. So whilst they are you know functioning normally, their mind is still you know is still recovering and reeling in their indefinite uh, insanity state, and uh, so they are subject to potentially to see delusions, which you know can be characterised in any way. They could see you know they could start to see monsters where they're not monsters. They could not see monsters where there are monsters. Um, you know, as as a very simple example. Um, and so they start to um, misbelieve the world around them, which is that, that part of that kind of underlying corruption of their senses that the mythos is having on them. And, um, and so, you know, and then you get to the point where, you know, you get to the end of a chapter or, you, you know, you get to the end of a scenario and you can then, you know, go into self-help or the character can go to, you know, get some uh, sort of uh, healthcare assistance or private healthcare 
or, or you know, as as the rules say, the keeper can simply say, you know, enough time has passed that you you have recovered from this, and now you know you you are no longer indefinitely insane. The, you can the keeper can simply say that that has happened if they feel that you know that serves the story in the time. You know, it makes sense narratively for that for that to happen in their game. Um, you know, but there are you know there are you know a, a number of kind of things that a character can do to kind of um, you know shake off that kind of. Uh, indefinite state that uh, they may be suffering i i think i need to use that delusion stuff more i i haven't really used it i was i was because it is a little bit um open-ended about how you implement it or introduce it um and i, and I kind of just parked it and thought okay maybe and also the, that area around disbelieving what you're seeing it's really interesting but i couldn't quite figure out how how to best play it out i i did do it recently in my blackwater creek and it was kind of fun because mm. i just stored up all the sanity loss for this one player and then and, and he was very much i don't believe this stuff anyway to begin with so right. so it was perfect but i think they're two very interesting areas there's so much richness really to to this around how you how you play your character um uh the, the, and i think that just to move across a little bit very briefly to combat because I, I wanted to spend some time talking about about Mars uh, another area that I found is so has been so helpful to to the role playing and the narrative of of how the action is happening you know I I come from a long uh, w- w- with a big gap but a long history of playing D and D and you know in D and D yeah it's, it's fun but basically. The temptation is just to roll the dice, say you hit, d- and do the damage. You know, because fights go on for a long time, and like if you're trying to be creatively narr- narrative about every single sword blow, you'll be there forever. Um, oh yes. <laughs> uh, so it just doesn't lend itself to that. And I know some people do narrate all of that, but it's a hell of a heavy lift because you know you just run out of um, variations at some point. But because. Yeah fights in Call of Cthulhu are sh- short, bloody, and brutal, te- generally speaking. Um, and mm. because, yeah. and, and I think you definitely call this out, or at least, I don't know whether you've, whether I've heard people say this from your, from the writers or read it, but it's designed so that something's always happening as, as far as I can see. You know, there's no, there's no like, you know, whiff, you know, swing and miss, swing and miss, swing and miss. And then, you know, every round there's something happening, either th- from dodging or from, fumbling a role or from malfunction or you know there's all these little bits that help you tell this very vivid story of what's going on in the fight and i found that really helpful to me as a as a keeper and for the players to really get into that kind of narrative idea of combat yeah no absolutely i mean that's exactly why we um changed the combat system from a kind of i go you go system which uh, unfortunately, if you know both characters have got low kind of you know fighting skills, it tended to sometimes be that kind of I miss you, you miss me, mm. and we keep missing each other for a good ten minutes of gameplay, which is incredibly dull and not realistic in any way. Um, so we changed it to an opposed role system to 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 that so that for the majority of time, something would always happen every round. You know, somebody would get hit. Yeah. You know, occasionally you but you know occasionally nothing happens if you both roll you know both roll a miss or something like that. But um, uh it, it, it you know it's designed to ensure that you know combat is quick and that you know in, in the real world if you know you get into a fist fight you know not in a boxing ring but on the street it's over really quickly oh, yeah. really quickly and so we've, know, all, we've all seen the cctv um footage from luton town center on a friday night yeah indeed yeah so so, so it, it tries to mirror that reality and of course if you look at the back of the combat chapter in the main rule book where there are some optional kind of layers to combat if you want to mm. kind of bolt them in. Um, our original playtest rule was that um, in combat at the moment, if you both um, 
uh, I'm trying to think of the situation, but you both basically um, um, miss in combat. Say, say you're attacking me and I fight back. Yeah, and you but both we miss. both we both miss. In the standard version, the general version of the game, we both basically don't do damage. We basically negate each other's attack that round, basically. Uh-huh. We move on, carry on next round. But in the optional rules, we have the original playtest rules, which are basically, you both miss, which basically means you both fail to defend yourselves. Uh-huh. So you both take damage. Oh, that's brutal. And that's, <laughs> so that, that is really brutal. But that's why we left it in the optional rules, because, nice. you know, because um, it, it sometimes people are new to Call of Cthulhu take a little time to get their head around the combat because they don't appreciate that when you make a combat roll in Call of Cthulhu, although it's a single roll, it isn't a single blow. It's a combination of feints, moves, blows, parries, mm. blocks that are encompassed in a single roll that's opposed by your opponent. And so once you get that into your head that actually it's a series of, you know, a series of actions culminating in this one die roll, um, then it opens your mind to the possibilities of what could happen in that. Uh, and so it isn't just a straight, I punch you, you punch me. It's, you know, I duck and dive, I, you know, find it, find a gap and I, you know, kick you or headbutt you or whatever it may be. So it, it kind of um, hopefully kind of opens up that narrative space, as you were saying, to give you kind of some ideas and it gives the player, you know, some narrative freedom to describe the style of fighting. You know, there isn't a, there isn't a martial arts skill necessarily in, in Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. There is a fighting skill. And if you if your character wants to say that, well, I'm trained in jiu-jitsu, that's great. You you describe your combat using you know jiu-jitsu terms, and that's what happens. You know, you've still got the same fighting skill because that's your fighting skill. Mm. It just so happens you're trained in a particular style of fighting. You know, you're fighting against a boxer who's a pugilist. You know, they can they'll describe their things with a roundhouse blow and a you know a uppercut and all that kind of thing. So, you know, it's very much kind of leaves open for the for the players to kind of you know bring their own personality of their character to the describing their you know their combat actions in that way so so you simplified the brawling but so so why then did you leave in all the specialized weapon skills for sword and chainsaw and whip and so on was that was that a, they are, a bit of well, a bit of a legacy again, thing as well or? well it's partly legacy but it's also partly real world mm. you know if you're tra- you know wielding a knife or a club, we, we call them kind of basic weapons. And, you know, and most yeah. people can pick up a knife and a club and pretty much know what they're doing to use them. Somebody who has never picked up a sword or is untrained That's in a true. sword, <laughs> it's a completely different, you know, uh, engagement of, 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 of attack. And if yes. you don't know what you're doing, you are going to get you're going to get mullered, you know. <laughs> so, you know and um, so so that's why there is a difference in certain skills. And again, you know, chainsaws in there for really just because you know because of the Evil Dead, really. Let's be honest. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, we don't expect people to be wandering around with chainsaws. The chainsaw is there is if you run to the shed in the modern game, there's a chainsaw. Of course, you're going to want to use it. So yeah. yes, here's a skill for you to do that. Wonderful. With. But Wonderful. Um, but all the other weapons. But what we did, we 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 still. You know, back in the old, uh, the old editions, every single weapon more or less was a separate skill. So, rifle would be its own skill, mm. shotgun would be its own skill. But if you see in seventh edition, we've yeah. basically, you know, gone with the modern version view that actually firing both of those firearms is relatively the same kind of technique and skill. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you can fire one, you can fire the other. Whereas firing a handgun again is a different set of skills or a different technique, and so that's why their modification, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of uh, differentiated within the the skill pool. Um, but you know, again, at the end of the skill chapter, there's a bit about skill groupings and things like that. So if you want characters to be able to kind of yeah. have more leeway with those kind of skills, then there is some, you know, there is optionality to do that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, all my all my pulp players are. Uh, they're all desperate to get their hands on Tommy guns and and um, Maxims. And, and, <laughs> It'll um, do them no good. Yeah, It'll it will. It really will. Um, <laughs> oh boy, that that took me a while to get my head around this the SMG rules. But actually, once you read them through a couple of times, they're actually very good. That they they seem to work very well. Um, so yeah, they, they, I mean, they, we, yeah, I wouldn't say I, I you know I don't claim to say that we seventh edition is the is the perfect and most perfect version of Call of Cthulhu that there ever be. There are there are tweaks and things, you know, certainly both Paul and I, you know, have discussed since, you know, something that she came out, what, four or five years ago or more now. Um, that, you know, we would look to maybe further refine and maybe make it a little easier. And certainly, you know, we'd certainly relook at the um the kind of the uh the automatic weapon skills and that kind of stuff. And then chases as well. You know, there's areas where, you know, we introduced some slight different rules that we, you know, want to kind of maybe revisit and think about, mm. you know, did we present them in the most um, you know, comprehensive form that we could um and in some cases we may have done in other cases we may not and you know yeah. i think you know we're always open to kind of you know further development and refining where it's you know where it helps the game and that's what it's about so so let's talk about chasers so you 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 um um you obviously must have heard my my sort of diatribe against chasers at one point in my podcast because you sent me a message about that and saying you know give them a go and, and then of course you didn't realize that i had given them a go and i and i and i <laughs> yeah. and i have my shameful admission that i i really you know to to kind of reject a rule system or, or, or um, subsystem because it seems, I don't know, whatever, too complicated or too much bother um, without ever having tried it out is a is a foolish thing to do because as soon as I did run one, I realized this is fantastic. And my, my, my issue, and I'll sort of just summarize it, was to me yeah. it felt like in other games, chases are just this sort of delay before you have the fight that they weren't fun in themselves it was just <laughs> yeah. you both roll a dexterity check or something you look at you can pay your movement speeds and do you catch them do you not you can and then of course you can hack it a bit and introduce some things like hazards and so on but um you know what i love about the way you've put together the chases i'm sure you must have play tested this quite a lot i i would have thought was it becomes as exciting as a fight because of all these possible permutations of things that can happen. And of course, there can be a fight in the middle of the chase anyway. You can exchange blows or shoot at someone. So it becomes this much bigger um, arena for stuff to happen with a changing, um, you know, set dressing and and, and locations and elevations. And so it, it becomes this, this very rich three-dimensional experience, I found. And the players loved it. Um, I was just, wor- I was worried at first it would just descend to a series of skill checks, but it became much more of a story of, of, of this crazy chase through through the streets of Cairo. So, uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Tell me about well, it. It's good to hear you got, you know, you got there in the end. And, and I mean, I, I mean, you know, when some edition came out, just as a quick aside, there, you know, we had some people that had been playing the game for a long time, we were, you, know, you know, a little kind of reserved about, um, you know, this new edition and changes and, you know, why do you need to change anything and all that kind of thing. And then, you know, that perfectly respect people's views like that. But my answer was always, well, my suggestion is, why don't you just try it? If you still don't like it, hey, you, you you can still play with all the material you've still got and indeed convert the new material to the old system anyway. Um, but give it a try. You know, it, it, games are there to be played. And, you know, we do our best to try and explain rules on the page and we don't always get it perfect. Um, and so, you know, until you actually try something out, it's you never quite know how a, how a game or a rule is going to actually play out. So I'm really pleased, you know, you, you bit the bullet and then give it a go. <laughs> but um, but in terms of uh, chases, yeah, I mean, it's a really, <laughs> what you said originally about, you know, it just seemed to be like a, 
a delay before the before we had a fight. I think that's classic kind of role player speak, isn't it? Because we are so trained that in a role playing game, you're either having a fight or you're having a conversation. It's pretty much it's one or the other. And so when you introduce this you know other way, this middle path, which is a chase, it's kind of like, well, where does that fit between the two? Well, it actually it's its own thing. And actually, you can treat it as a whole new, as you say, a whole new kind of um, diorama within the game um, to, you know, to, again, to, to propel the story forward in some way. Uh, and what you have is a series of mechanics that help to um, that help you narrate a chase, basically. Um, mm. So it's very much uh, trying to make it as, you know, as, uh, as straightforward as possible. But, you know, as with any... As with any new rule system, even if it's a kind of you know rules, mini rule system within a larger rule system, you have to get used to it. You know, you have to try it a few times. You got you know just if, you know when you first play you know any role playing games combat system, you know a traditional one at least, um, it's going to take you a few times of playing combat to get your head around it. You know where where does armor come off? Is that armor class or do I take armor points off? I don't quite know. Um, what do I roll to? Is it a target number or is it am I, am I, is it an opposed roll? You know, and you learn the system as you go, and it's the same with chases. You you play it out a few times, but as you say, what the beauty of it is, I mean, it all stems from Lovecraft's fiction. It stems from the Shadow of Rindmouth. Shadow I mean, yeah, the sh- absolutely, Shadow of Rindmouth has got the archetypal horror chase scene in the, yes. the Gilman House Hotel. You've got the you know the narrator is you know chased by the inhabitants of Deep Bonds you know through the town from the hotel room, and it's really tense. It's really cool, and there's no combat in it whatsoever. But it's just as much fun as a you know if he'd been there you know boxing with the deep ones so um you know we felt that it's a horror game and what's what's a what's a major trope in horror films and and certainly some horror fiction is chases and 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 um whilst yes you can simply deal with the chase in call of cthulhu and in many games with some sort of opposed dex role or whatever and hey if that's what you want to do and move on with the narrative of your game and, and you know the chase is over in a couple of seconds that's great but if you want to kind of spend more time on it and you want to kind of you know um you know really kind of deepen the narrative around that like you know like you're uh like you did with the kind of uh, the episode in uh, in masks with the uh, you know the, the chasing the uh, the boys with the you know the investigators bags and whatnot then mm. um you know it, it it gives you some tools to do that and that's what you know any game is about it's a set of tools for you to use to kind you know to to aid the gameplay to build that kind of narrative experience and and um and move the story on and um and that's what you know that's where that's where the chases come from paul Paul did all the original work on the chase rules, and then you know we both kind of play tested them, as you say, to uh, the nth degree, yeah. and um, to try and you know get them right. And then you know then we do then we go like, oh, what about car chases? Okay, let's try and build that in as well. <laughs> well I haven't tried one about... of them yet. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will. I, I think mean, one of them. Go on. I was going to say, I mean, the difference, the big difference in car chases and people chases is that you know you're just rolling drive auto instead of your dex roll, and and but your but your but your your challenges and obstacles and barriers can be can be you know you can up the scale, you know you can have other cars coming in front of you and all that kind of thing. Mm. So you, it just plays to those kind of classic uh, chase tropes, but it is it technically isn't that more complicated to do it in a car. You just have to know that there's a few tables to look at if your car crashes. Yeah, it's it's, it's you know you want to be you want to be ramming them or being rammed off the road. That's that's got to be yes, part of the car yes. chase. So yeah, I'll I'll do that at some point. Um, uh, they just they they haven't got a car at the moment. They had a very nice one in uh, um, <laughs> they had a very nice one in England. Um, but uh, the um, 
Um, the one thing that, that I need to get quicker at is um, it feels like it's it's a little bit of a, a mental lift to to just quickly do one on the fly because obviously you have to think about the different hazards mm. and, and how they're going to... And it, it just, you know, yes, you could just scribble down a bunch of stuff, but I think you do need a little bit of prep time beforehand to think about it in a creative way uh, to make it per- as, yeah. as fun as possible. So um, Personally, so I, I, yeah. I agree, yeah. I, yeah. I, I would do the same. But there, there is... There is um, Again, using your players can be helpful here. If you mm. are doing it on the fly, having them say, yeah, what's up ahead? You know, and yes. then somebody will shout out something you didn't think of. And go, oh, that's a great barrier. Okay, that's in. And, yeah. you know, you can you can do it that way. But, uh, but I agree. Yeah, I think, you know, five minutes just on a scrap of paper, just sketching out, you know, what potential barriers there could be in, uh, or obstacles is uh, is certainly, a, you know, a thing, to, you know, a thing to do. So seeing as we touched on it, um, I... I hope we got a little bit more time that we can keep talking because I, I did want to dive in a little bit yeah, in, sure. in, into into masks uh, um, and specifically yeah, the England absolutely. chapter. Um, it's funny. Maybe I'll eventually I'll speak to, to to every writer of the of the fifth edition of Mars. <laughs> get the, get the, the whole set, chapter. Because yeah. <laughs> um, obviously I, I talked to Scott a bit about Prue, but the England chapter was was like um, a breakthrough for us as a group. I think um, we'd mm. had huge fun playing Peru and America, huge fun. But when we got to England, I I think. Um, the, the the coherence of the narrative really comes together there for me for the first time, and then it and then it ratchets it up again when you get to, to Egypt. From I'm realizing, but but yeah. um, the England chapter is is for me the moment at which you start to understand what's uh, in some way what's going on. You don't really understand what's going on, and players, uh, if you're listening. Um, there will probably be some spoilers, <laughs> but prob- we'll try and avoid them a bit. Anyway, that was just to them. Note to note to them. Um, uh, of course, I, uh, as you know, I, I haven't read previous editions. I haven't read previous editions of Masks. Um, that that interlocking kind of, um, I guess, these different forces interlocking in England. You know, Zara Shafiq's forces, Gavigan's forces, the implication of other. Um, uh, brotherhood forces in 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 Cairo, the, the 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 first kind of real ability to, I suppose, interact in some way with with these elements of of Nile Arthur of the Black Pharaoh specifically for the first time. Mm. Was that something yeah. that you kind of changed dramatically from previous ones, or was it just restructuring them? Or you know, to tell me a little bit about about how, how that chat yeah, fits together. I- I think in terms of, um, I think you're right, in terms of the England chapter is the first point in the campaign. I mean, if you follow the kind of the standard order mm. of play, which is obviously Peru, America, uh, obviously from America, players could go to any of the other you know, location chapters. But in the main, most most groups tend to go to England first. So it's the one that really opens up the scope of the whole campaign. Because whereas before you've had information and tidbits about you know, things happening around the world or, or information and names, they are simply that. They're just bits of information that haven't really coalesced into have a meaning yet. Mm. But when you uh, eventually kind of, you know, stumble through England, certainly, you know, as you get to the midpoint and, and, and beyond, you start to see that actually these bits of information are actually, um, you know, highlighting this path of of, of of um, living a living and breathing opposition, um, because what you have in England is uh, whereas in, a, in in the America chapter, the opposition is very static. You know, they basically they 
they they don't really know the investigators are onto them yet, probably, mm-hmm. and it's very much uh, in the hands of the investigators to actually, you know, um, go, ha ha, we're here, and you know, take on the uh, take on the local, you know, forces of darkness in in the uh, American chapter. Whereas in England, um, you 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 know, fairly quickly are introduced to key players who you know you know could be bad guys, um, and um, if you're not careful of how you actually you know, role play those initial interactions, you, you suddenly throw up these red flags about the group going, well, these guys are asking very interesting questions. I should, I should look into these people more. And suddenly you have a cult actively working against the, you know, against the, uh, the player characters, the investigators. So it, it suddenly becomes a much more dynamic um, game and campaign because this is the first chapter that kind of really introduces that aspect and obviously the other chapters build on that and you see each of the cults working in slightly different ways and having different kind of you know uh, agenda to follow but um but ultimately a lot is set up in england because obviously if you if you handle england wrong and you, you know in, the england chapter has the capability to forewarn every other cult in the planet that you're likely to meet to say there's a group of people they look like this and their names are these when they arrive you must kill them whatever it may be oh yeah so, that's, ex- um, that's exactly what my players did they, they are not <laughs> going to get a moment's rest they they got they got way too close to zara shafiq and and not only does she know them all she even um did a uh, you know did a, m- m- turned herself into one of them using that spell and and hung oh, out yes, them yes, for, yes, for yes. a good Fantastic. for a good day to 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 kind of um, put a spanner in the works at Gavigan's um, ritual up at Miser House. So um, that they are, and, and and Shafiq is still alive in in my campaign and still there. Oh, in good. The background yeah, good, good, good. Scheming. Well, so, Shafiq is Shafiq is a um, a character I introduced to the new edition. Oh, um, really? she wasn't okay. she wasn't originally there, um, and um, I felt that uh, the you know, I, I don't believe that cults are all harmonious organisations that all love each of each other and love each uh, other internally um they they are these you know uh seething masses of infighting and backstabbing and things like that some of the time you know others may be more ordered and uh, regimented but uh, I, I i could see where you see the links between the brotherhood in england and in egypt you could you it just seemed to me that it was plain that it could be some kind of um uh tension between those two groups um, particularly with a person like Gavigan, who who believes himself to be, you know, better than most. Um, mm. That uh, these this upstart Englishman is, you know, down, you know, just setting himself up to be pulled down a peg or two by <laughs> the uh, the true kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, leaders in the in in the in the kind of the cult uh, well, in the worldwide sense. So, I, that, so yeah, introducing those kind of layers was was something we added to uh, mm. to the new edition in that way. And and that's a fantastic addition. It really is because because otherwise it would be quite linear that you you find out about what Gavigan's really up to and then you go and deal with him. But adding Shafiq in creates this very much more um, open ended way of how do you deal with it um, and and who do you deal with because who's who's the more dangerous of the two. It's never specified. I mean, Shafiq, in sure. some ways, is probably more dangerous because she's closely <laughs> allied to Omar al Shakti in, in 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 Egypt, or at least closer. Um, but also probably sure. has uh, um, plans for that as well. At least in my, in my I, I could just I could just see groups. You know, they, the groups would either kind of go for the you no, know, you're all bad guys, and we need to you know keep away or try and you know deal with you all. But I love this idea of introducing this kind of person that would basically say, "Well, look, you know, my your enemy is my enemy, mm-hmm. and you know, we could work together on this and and just dig themselves a hole, really." And uh, which I think, you know, that's the beauty of Call of Cthulhu. Some scenarios is that you know, giving the players enough rope 
is is never a bad thing you know yeah to let them you know let them be the architects of their own downfall is uh is, is you know is, is one of the pleasures of keeping collectively when it's not it's not you that's actually done it all you've done is giving them the tools to to uh to defeat themselves really but uh yeah so yeah it's uh it's it's nice and um the uh the england chapter is uh it, it's very much uh you know the, the, it, it's quite a it was quite a linear chapter i think you're right initially uh, and, and as I said, I just tried to throw in some more layers to it. And uh, I mean, for, there was also a kind of a there was a bit of a problem with the England chapter in terms of the overall plot. Uh, in that um, the you know once you kind of you've know, got the whole kind of what's going on in the campaign, particularly with what's being you know one of the things that's been constructed in uh, in Shanghai. Um, mm. You had plans coming from Egypt and in England, they were making things and sending them to Shanghai to be uh, to be put together to build mm-hmm. this device. Um, uh, in the original England chapter, there was there was there was no manufacturing plant or any any oh, really? clue okay. clue as to where what was that what was actually happening and where where did it happen. So the whole um, the whole Derbyshire episode uh, where you have the manufacturing plant where that you know where you're getting these components and that was all that's all new to this version of the uh, the campaign. Wonderful! Oh, I felt really it was good. a big a bit of a bit of a big plot hole unfortunately that uh, that you know i think needed to be filled yeah i know it it, it all meshes together really nicely um in, in our playthrough once they d- dealt with gavigan um shafiq actually um manipulated the players into um into d- doing a raid at henson manufacturing so she wouldn't have to get her hands dirty and then Fantastic. she's now she's now taken over the whole uh, the whole oh. <laughs> well that's, that sounds perfect yeah, yeah. so uh, perfect, I, yeah. I really got to think about how and when to, to reintroduce her because i'm thinking of probably not doing it during the egypt chapter because it would be too obvious too, too obvious. soon yeah, yeah. I, I think it'd be kind of cool to bring her back in another point players if you're listening to this I'm going to kick your asses. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to tell them not to listen to this. Um, well, the, the beauty of the beauty of uh, the beauty of that character is so that, uh, as you've already said, um, she could appear as anyone really, and you know it could be far too late before they realise who it really is down yes. the line that they've been talking to. So that is true. Yeah. That's a good one. Good one. I like it. I like it. Um, and so, and you know, I'm, I'm feeling it now in Egypt. I'm feeling it. I felt it very much in England that that. Um, the the sense of place and time and let's call it you know I, I know you were kind of making a joke about immersion earlier but but by creating these very rich settings that that have a lot of real world echoes and feel you know they feel authentic mm. I think that's helped hugely in us believing in 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 what we're playing. Um, I know that Scott says he spends a ton of time doing research to get it right, to get the details right. Are you also in that sort of um, mindset? <laughs> do you do days and weeks of research to get the details right? I was laughing because uh, you mentioned Scott saying he does a lot of research. Um, I, as you know, when I'm editing, you know, Scott's work as well as anyone else's. Obviously, part of my job as editor is to kind of check their research that they got it right. <laughs> So does he? Does so he? I'll see. I'll see anyone's research and double it, basically. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. I mean, if, when you're writing for Call of Cthulhu, um, obviously, if you're writing modern day stuff, you can get away with this because obviously, you don't you know? It's a little easier to know what's you know yeah. going on. Uh, but um, when it's kind of 1923. 
um, you know, Cairo or, or to be honest, 1925 Derbyshire, England. Yes. There isn't even, even with the internet, there ain't a lot. <laughs> and no. so, uh, luckily I, I live down the road from Derbyshire. So I was able to, uh, actually go to the, the Derbyshire, you know, library and actually look oh, at some wonderful. real things and like, you know, work out where places were and whatnot. But, um, how, how but yeah, so <laughs> research is, uh, is, is, is one of the things, but I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the beauty of, Call of Cthulhu in a sense is that you 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 get the chance to hide myths tr- mistruths within truth within historical fact you you hide mm. you know the mythos and you hide uh, fictional characters and locations within within you know where down the street there is you know reality historical reality um, you get to play with you know and introduce historical characters you know as kind of part of the part of the colour and background of the of the scenery, um, whilst, you know, your fictional characters are kind of playing the key roles, I guess. Um, but you get to play, I guess, a little bit with history or you get to experience, you know, that's, you know, I tend to prefer that kind of term, but you get to experience history uh, of the setting uh, just to whatever degree you and your group want to explore it, I guess, you know, and obviously, uh, that you know, there's, there's a, a whole gamut of things, you know, to whether it's the kind of the different cultures and, and uh, attitudes to, you know, just, uh, you know, what was, what was, you know, what was it like living in a, in a house where there wasn't electricity, you know, what, what, how does that actually work in terms of the game? Um, so um, I think it's, it, it's one of those um, systems that allows you, games that allows to, to kind of you know, if you like history, it's a, it's a great game because there's a lot of it in it, and you learn things from reading scenarios that other people have written, and they've researched cool things that you never never knew about, and um, and uh, so you pick up these things and they you store them in your head for when you're running a game and so on, and and so yeah, it's uh, it's. Uh, it's it's very cool. Yeah. I mean, I like history, so I would say that. So. Yeah. No, I, I realized at one point that I had sort of let my players down a bit when we got to England, pretty much so, as soon as we got to England, because um, just because I, I live in the United States, so all my players are, are Americans. Um, most of them, all none of them are over 30 as well. I, I play with a bunch of kids, really. No, I, I don't mean that as an insult, guys. So, so their frame, of, their frame of reference. No, if they're listening, um, their frame of reference is is so different to mine. Um, and and they arrived at Waterloo as you do. You know, get, get the train up from Southampton once you you know, you know docked and whatever. Um, and then you get off, and 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 I and I said, yeah, and, and you can see um, you can see Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament over over Westminster Bridge, and and left it at that. And then afterwards, I found out that they were they, they were like they were really let down. They wanted me to fully describe what Big Ben looked like, <laughs> the, you know. Oh, and, of course, yeah and, yeah, and, yeah. and for me, it was like, well, because as soon as I said that, I have this incredibly vivid picture in my head. I don't need any more detail. But you, but it really made me realize, no, you, you, you don't be afraid of over describing things or, or feel like you're because I think that just that really helps players often um, particularly in a real real inverted commas setting like like um, you know the world in the 1920s where where every little piece of detail you know the fact that Mexican silver dollars are a legal tender in in Egypt what an amazingly weird thing but it's oh, great no, absolutely <laughs> I mean I think yeah, it's, there is always a scale to this and there's always a balance to be had because mm. um Obviously, you don't want to bore people. You know, you, no. you, you, you know, there's a there's a there's a degree to which that kind of description is 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 either vital or 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 desired, and uh, and that's cool. But it's kind of knowing when you've crossed the boundary. Often, I find players will let you know because as, as you 
as you start campaigns and you get to the kind of the you know through to the midpoint players are really enjoying all this description they're really kind of feeding in feeding off the kind of you know your 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 vivid description of big ben and the and the and the bells at 12 and the houses of parliament and the you know the color of the thames and so forth uh, and that's all really lovely and it's building the color and building the atmosphere and that's great and then you know the plot happens and and they get to do some stuff and as the campaign progresses the players become more and more focused on the plot because mm. there's then more and more in danger and they're more and more aware of a clicking clock or whatever it may be or what the threat is against them and suddenly they're like yeah 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 i don't care what big ben looks like just tell me <laughs> can i can i can i shoot him or what you know whatever it may be um so your players will will you know but as yes. i said i think i said earlier uh when we started talking uh, the biggest advice i can give in any game uh, is know your players understand what they understanding what they're looking for, understanding what their needs are, yeah. and, and obviously trying to, to meet that. And as you say, understanding you know that your players were looking for a you know a little bit more of a deeper insight into some of the setting mm. material, you know. But you know that now, and so you can you know you can introduce that as you need to, and yeah. uh, take it from there. Yeah. So look, we're, we're not going to have time to talk about Pulp of Cthulhu. We maybe we'll have to do another one of these at some point. But I did want to finish up with two little with a, with a little thing about about the the the, the propel, propelling them through. Um, now, obviously, there are two really interesting fun and quite big side treks so to speak during the england mm. chapter there's yeah. the chelsea serpent and the derbyshire horror i believe you call it um yes yeah. um they are both so much fun to run i can't tell you but of course they're very much off to the side and you can maybe tie in a few little loose threads my players got obsessed with the blue john caverns they were sure this was a <laughs> portal to another world and wanted to go oh, there and spend fantastic. time there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and of course, <laughs> yeah. Go on. Sorry. I was just saying. I spent. I spent many an hour in the blue drunk cabins in that way. So it's kind of. It's funny. It's very funny. Uh, yeah. 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 So, so one of the I would say it's a criticism, but one of the the kind of heads up warnings for you read a lot is you know watch out for the side quests. They they can really distract your players and maybe get them off the track and. I didn't personally feel that, but I could see how that might be a, a risk if if your if your players do get very kind of you know you know spend session after session up in Derbyshire and whatever what mm, were those yeah. in the in the original were they as flesh yeah they, they they were they were in the original um they they were they the Chelsea serpent is pretty much um the same as in the original there's a little bit of kind of some added kind of um guidance on things that can happen that perhaps wasn't in the original such as uh you know if they do you know do the magic thing and end up somewhere different um then uh this whereas before it's pretty much well that's it for them they're, they're out the game <laughs> really? um, so I, I tried to introduce some kind of ideas about when maybe maybe here's how you could get them back in the game and not end your campaign after you know four sessions of play um so um so that you know i kind of i basically enhanced the chelsea serpent with a bit more kind of um versatility in terms of ensuring that it just it wasn't a one-end stop for for the game basically in the campaign um uh, with the other one, uh, the Derbyshire Horror, uh, again, um, the format of the story is pretty much the same. I did embellish some here and, and, and build some detail in for the, the keeper to kind of play with if they wished. Um, the, the main thing is that I threw it on its head. Um, and so this is a spoiler, but um, in the original campaign, um, what <laughs> the advice at the start of the scenario is basically do everything you can to make sure the players don't think this is a werewolf. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, as soon as you, 
within five seconds of playing the scenario, anyone is going to go, where's the werewolf? Yeah. And no matter how you try and hide it, it ain't going to happen. So I, I just embraced that and turned it on its head by saying, yes, there is a werewolf. But in fact, it's not a werewolf. It's something else. But but playing with, you know, play with the werewolf trope. So that's the kind of the inversion I did on that scenario. But yeah, I agree. Um, the sidetrack scenarios are, you know, we, we label them as sidetracks purposefully, not to say that they, they aren't part of the main campaign. They are diversions. And we try to, um, I guess the advice is to try and signpost them to some degree like that. To kind of you know encapsulate that this this is taking you away from hmm. your current research, or maybe after doing the first one, uh, you kind of like you know you, you try and frame it that it is uh, taking them away from you know whether well, well, well you know you know you can say to the players you know, so what so tell me why you why are you going to Derbyshire again what what is it why do you think that's important and get them to explain to you go like, okay so that's so so you've not found any kind of links to um, Gavigan there have you okay so it's going to be you know maybe may something completely different you know. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, you kind of give them some ammo to kind of make a choice whether they do want to go there or not. But, I mean, um, I the think way, any... the, 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 the way I did it was after they'd been up to Henson, um, they wanted a bit of R&R and they'd heard there was yeah. a lovely um, B&B in this, in, up, in the, up in the Peak District that would be a very nice place to rest and recuperate. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's how, how I there. would do it. That's, that's, kind of, that's exactly how I would kind of do it, to be honest. It's that kind of like, um, you know, have um, a rest and it turns out not to be. But, and, the, um, and the funny thing is, um, my players still were convinced it was a werewolf, even when they had seen that it wasn't. <laughs> they kept on well, it's like, well, it's a werewolf. No, no, really, honestly, there's no fur. <laughs> but um, no, That's perfect. Um, and, 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 yeah, the, it did come up out of the ground. Anyway, um, so, look, um, I, I, I just want to say that I, I, I have loved playing the England chapter. Um, I'm also loving playing Pulp, and we, we, we didn't have a chance to talk talk about it um but one one little thing i, I just want to uh, leave you with is is that um we actually switched um during the england chapter from standard to pulp because oh, okay. i think some of yep. my players were were wanting to um i don't know I, I i it felt like we were heading in that direction and the campaign sort of yeah. needed it yeah um and the way we did it was that basically they did end up going into the painting and through there, oh, that's awesome. yeah. they got, they got, they got somehow. I won't go into the details, but they somehow mm. figured out how to get to the dreamlands. And when they came back, they were pulp. <laughs> they were pulp that's, heroes. That's, that's fantastic. I love, that's a, that's a great use of uh, you know the inbuilt narrative to then twist it to uh, to change yeah. the style of game as you go. That, that's that's absolutely genius. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Oh, and uh, yeah, we should that, de- well, we should fun. definitely uh, definitely talk again and happy to, uh, to yeah. talk about pulp and things. But certainly, masks was. You know, whilst it was, you know, whilst Pulp clearly hadn't been invented when Masks first came out, if it had been, Larry would have written it as Pulp Cthulhu because I mean, it's, it's everyone's always considered it quite a pulpy campaign. So we just wanted to make sure you could you could play it with Pulp as well as regular Cthulhu uh, with a new edition, and, and yeah, I think it works fine with either. But I, it, you know, exactly, I, I tend exactly. I tend to uh, I would tend to uh, I like the fact that you can kind of take the gloves off when you're playing Pulp Cthulhu. So and I think that would serve Masks. Very well. Now, just, one last yeah. one one last question before we go. I, I totally agree. I, I've loved running it in both, but I want to ask you one last question. We've got to sure. the midpoint. Well, we're sort of, I would say, a quarter of the way through Egypt. So we've done three and a quarter chapters. I haven't killed a character yet. Am I failing as a keeper? <laughs> Depends who you ask. But no, I mean, my opinion, no. I mean, I, I, um, I, I, I strongly feel that kind of. 
um, insignificant character death through through accidental injury is a mm. really poor show in a campaign. Um, I, I just don't think it works. I think the player becomes you know disinterested, uh, kind of casually killing players and uh, characters in that way. Um, I think it's problematic. I think it's a, it's a surefire way to end your campaign as players become disenfranchised with, with, with that mm. style. Um, and so a lot of the work we did with the new edition of Masks was to take out those kind of random acts of death that really mm. had no bearing on the plot. It was just a pull, you know, if you fail this dice roll, you're dead. It's kind of, well, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit harsh. Um, well, and- that, that, that might be about to change because literally in the very last session we played, one of the characters decided for some reason to look into the golden mask again. And oh, she right, rolled yeah, yeah. a critical power roll and has yeah. accidentally <laughs> contacted Niall Arthotep. And that's where we left it. So oh, that's this perfect. But I mean, could... <laughs> yeah, but you see, there's a, there's a major difference there. Yeah? Yes. You, di- you haven't done that. No, I haven't. The player has chosen <laughs> to open that door and walk yeah. inside the room and knowing full well that, you know, it's probably not a good idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, And that's exactly. fine. Exactly. And the thing is, it's pulp. So, I mean, you know, she why don't you just spend all their luck points and, you know, find a way out of it? You know, you've got I, that I, inbuilt, so. I think it's the potential sanity loss more than the uh, hit point loss. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially I mean, if he decides to turn up in one of his less yeah. elegant outfits. <laughs> no, oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. But, I mean, you know. As I say, you know, casual, you know, character death is is often, you know, um, not satisfying. However, at the right point in a long campaign, that you know, a single instance, sudden shocking, you know, instance can be really effective. Again, mm, it's just mm. knowing where to pitch it and when to pitch it. Um, you know, it, you know, it, it's one of the it's one of the toolkit, you know, one of the toolkit really in that way. But uh, but certainly, I don't think you know. I think. I, I think the whole point, if you, if you buy a campaign, you want to play it. So I think, you know, trying to get most of the characters through to the end, yeah, even if it's not, exactly. even if you know, they're, they're original characters or not, you want to do it, you know. And there's so many, you know, totally. in the old editions of Masks, constantly reading, you know, people's reviews of the old editions of Masks, like, oh, we never got past Egypt. You know, we ended the campaign, everyone died six times, and then we all kind of, like, just got better. Mm. And we never finished the campaign. It seems like a real shame. You know, it's such a great yeah. campaign, it's such a great story. Why don't you want to play it all? And, and so, you know, taking out that kind of, you know, random character death without any meaning helps, you know, helps you to enjoy the whole campaign. And that's, that's the whole point, yeah. Well, well, um, Mike, um, I, I, I just wanted to thank you again for joining me, but also wanted to thank you for helping me to play, um, and I'm going to say this um, in all its grandiosity, the greatest campaign ever written in, as Kenneth Hyde would say, the greatest game system ever written. So, <laughs> so that is two pretty good things that's, to have on your. That's very, on your very, uh, very kind of you. And uh, and uh, but obviously not just I. There's many talented people I work with. Not in not only the writers and the artists, but uh, talented people like um, Nick Nicario, who does all the layout for books like Masks and the Rulebook and all that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, he doesn't uh, get mentioned far enough for people like Dustin Wright, who does, who makes sure the, you know, the warehouse is working and books get delivered to people. You know, I I work with a lot of very talented people who do a a range of different things, whether they're, you know, employees of Chaosium or freelancers or or whatever. And, um, and so, you know, whilst it's, you know, lovely to play my role in that and, you know, take part credit, um, there's a lot of other people that you know, uh, they, they, you know, equally should be taking credit as well. So it's uh, it's just great that you know people enjoy the game and uh, enjoy the work that we've done, and you know, particularly with things like masks and uh, 
the other books you're putting out. So it's a, it's a pleasure to hear that you're you and your group are having fun with it because I mean mm. that's that's why we, that's why we're doing it. It's it's, yeah. you know, it's a game at the end of the day, and if people are having fun with the game that we're producing, then kind of that's the, that's a win for me. You know, so, Fantastic. Uh, so that's Fantastic. wonderful to hear. So thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, so thanks to all of your colleagues as well and everyone that's gone before you as well. Um and, and I'll leave you with this one little thought. Um tomorrow I'm gonna start I'm gonna run missed dues. So once I've done that, we'll have to get back in touch and you'll tell me oh, how, yeah, ro- yeah, how, how wrong do. I how wrong I did it. Oh no, you probably did all right. No, let's talk about Miss Dues and Paul. That sounds that sounds like wonderful. a great uh, another another good hour of conversation, Andy. So uh, uh, okay, uh, well, thanks, thanks very much. So, thanks so much, Mike, and uh, have a good day and um um Uh, Hopefully we'll speak again soon. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks again. Take care. All right. So... It's a game we're role-playing I'm a stranger and you're making mistakes Smell your